politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots, to the one and only Conservative Review podcast here at Blaze Media. It is Friday, October 30th, as we power towards Halloween and Election Day. Well, will Election Day be like Halloween, or will it be a salvation? And perhaps it will be neither. You know, I'm very torn. As you well know, I'm an independent thinker. That's why you come here as independent conservatives. And again, you want more independent conservative talk from people like me and Steve Dace. You can go to blazetv.com forward slash CR, put in promo code Daniel, get 30 bucks off your annual subscription special election season special. It'll be less than $6 a month for all of our programming. And the reason why you want independent talk is you're sick of this like Republican news, Democrat this, the horse race, this and that. Because so often we elect Republicans, often sometimes surprise, stunning victories. I've experienced that many times in my lifetime. And we get stabbed in the back within days. And we go backwards. And I'm really, I'm really very much caught in between because on the one hand, like everyone else, I'm getting caught up in the excitement. More than I thought before, I do think Trump is very much in the game and I think there's an outside shot that he could not just do what he did in 2016, but even, I mean, he'll likely do worse in some parts of the map, but in other parts of the map, do even better. And it would be stunning. It would be just like, given the polling and how certain the media is and and everything for them to lose, I, I would, I love it. I would, there's nothing more than that. But folks, what we need in this country is not any one election. What we need is a Boston Tea Party moment. When is our Boston Tea Party moment? And what I fear is that not only will the election not be that Boston Tea Party moment, because it's really not. It's a different type of thing. It will work against it because it will just dope our people up, get our people even more euphoric, but also distracted, just like people on drugs and we'll have even worse problems and Javanka problems and we won't be focused and then we'll get blamed for it and rinse and repeat the same cycle and get crushed in the midterms and you know the the corona fascism continues the anarchy continues remember the goal is not Trump to win Tuesday night the goal is to get our republic, at least in the states that are red, back on track where we have some modicum of order, ordered liberty, and freedom. Some modicum of free markets. Some modicum of security against domestic and foreign invaders. And boy, do we have a lot of news on that. But my concern is that many people are going to think this is our tea party. And let's say the best case scenario, let's say Republicans even win the House. I'm not saying it's necessarily possible, but we'll talk a little bit about the horse race today. Some of the things we're observing, why it, there's an outside shot. Again, the, the the realm of outcomes in my mind, at least, and again, I, I you know, I speak with certitude on, on first principles in terms of horse race. I'm less confident. That's not my expertise. And frankly, most people who say they are experts aren't. It's very volatile. To me, the realm of outcomes ranges from 
it could be the national polls are right and Trump could get crushed, although I increasingly think they're bogus. It could be razor thin, or it could be, I think, Trump could win a stunning victory. And again, stunning victory, given the demographics, doesn't mean Reagan or anywhere near that because it's impossible, but where it's, it's, it's decisive and, you know, they'll be close, but all the close states tip in his direction, right? doesn't mean like he'll crush it and certainly the popular vote, I still think he'll likely lose that no matter what, but that doesn't matter. But again, let's say Republicans win the House. Let's say he wins Nevada, holds all the other states, flips Nevada, wins Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, wins Minnesota, which, which I think is an interesting state to watch. Let's just say that's the outcome. Wow, awesome. So just understand you didn't win anything because we almost won that and we did win in 2016. We got the worst fiscal state of being, the worst dependency, terrible healthcare policy, the worst anarchy, the worst tyranny. This is not America anymore. And we could say it's not Trump's fault. It's this guy. The Republicans suck. It's the Democrat governors, rhino governors. And there's a lot of truth to that. But... <laughs> Then what's going to change in the second term? My point is, this is not to dump on Trump. I badly want him to win. It's a way of warning us, and I'm going to keep doing it from now until Election Day, and hopefully we'll have the opportunity after Election Day because hopefully a win. How do we convert? And I'm just concerned that it's harder to have a Boston Tea Party moment when you don't have King George, when officially it's your guy in the top position. And my point is, we're still going to need that Boston Tea Party moment because, you know, now we could say we have all that political capital to fight Corona fascism and fight the rioters. You're right. And I think we would. And we have to make that case. But you're going to have to have a policy change with Trump and among other Republicans. And that's going to be the latter is really going to be hard because these Republicans are problematic. But so so before we go through what I'm concerned about in the country and what I feel we're lacking in terms of a Tea Party moment. And we're going to go through a little bit of a revolutionary war history to understand that. I want to first talk about why I do think Trump is doing better than what the polls suggest. And I think part of what I had trouble coming to terms with is I said, look, even if the polls are exaggerated, no one disagrees that Arizona, Georgia, and Texas are in trouble. Now, you might think, especially Texas, which is the lead, you know, that's the least in play of the three, is certainly not going to flip, and Georgia's not going to flip, and even Arizona will hold. And, and I'm increasingly think he'll hold Arizona. But there's no disagreement that, you know, we're historically underperforming in those three states. And that was true already in 2016, right? Where, you know, typically we won Texas by 20. Romney might have been, I, I don't have it offhand, maybe 15. And Trump only won Texas by nine. T Trump only won Georgia by five. Trump only won Arizona by three and a half, right? So that is already baked in the cake. So typically I was like, well, if you're struggling, if you have to campaign in those states, well, how are you going to tell me all those Rust Belt states are still 
winnable and, and maybe even Minnesota, Nevada. But the more you study the map, Trump kind of flattened the curve. He flattened the map. In other words, he's created vulnerabilities in certain traditional Republican states, but he's opened up other states. So what you're seeing more and more is that he's bleeding white suburban women, but you know the black vote, he seems to be making inroads with black and Hispanic vote, which is the exact opposite of what the establishment told us if we ever nominated someone like Trump. And then also, there's a lot of evidence that the black vote is down even more than it was last time. And then you have a lot of new non-college-educated whites, kind of that Perot coalition, which Trump certainly has gotten a lot of it already, but it seems like he's squeezing out even more of those. So that's how you could have a map that's not a contradiction, that he might only be up by a thin margin in some of those traditionally red states, but at the same time, he could be even in, in what were traditionally Democrat states. So we're seeing that. Then you have the early voting, which typically I'm like, come on, you can't read anything into it. But increasingly, it's very hard to ignore it because what, what do we know? We know that typically Democrats win early voting overwhelmingly and lose Election Day voting overwhelmingly, meaning in an, a 50-50 even state. You know, you have exceptions, obviously, in overwhelmingly Democrat states. They'll win everything. And then you'll have certain states that maybe have their own uniqueness and buck the trend. But generally, everyone agrees that that is how it works. And you're seeing state after state where either the Democrats are underperforming their... Now, again, we don't know who people voted for, but if you just look at the D versus R registration turnout in early voting and you compare that to Election Day, I mean, you compare that to... 2016 early voting, and we know Trump wound up winning the 2016 election, almost everywhere he's exceeding the benchmarks. The Democrats in particular are below their benchmarks. They're below 2016 where they lost. And in some areas, Republicans are downright winning early voting. Now, there's no reason to suggest that Republicans would cannibalize their election day voting more than the Democrats in a year like this. If anything, it's more the Democrat voters that are scared to come out. They're scared of catching the virus. Um, all, all the polls that have been done, the sociological polls that have been done on this have shown that you know it, the, the partisan divide is very evident in terms of how scared you are of the virus. So, I mean... You know, obviously, everyone's talking about Florida, where Trump won Florida, and Republicans are meeting every benchmark. And then you look at Bra at 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 um, Miami Dade, where Republicans are downright ahead in early voting, and it's just—I mean, Miami Dade is is the whole enchilada. I mean, you lose that. You lose so much ground for if you're a Democrat, even if you, you know, accelerate some of the trends of winning the Jacksonville, Orlando, um, Tampa suburbs, think Hillsborough, Pinellas counties, even better than last time. You, I mean, you're you're cooked. You're cooked. I mean, Florida would be off the table. I could have egg on my face again. I mean, we're doing horse race now. 
So this is not first principle, so I don't mind being wrong. But I feel confident enough to, you know, I don't just want to bloviate. Oh, I think he's going to win. From what I'm seeing, from my own observations and hearing, that it's rapidly reaching an inflection point where Democrats cannot win the state. Because remember, I mean, if you're losing, typically what I've been told is you have a lot of precincts on election day where Democrats downright come in third place. (laughs) Meaning a third party is ahead of them in terms of the election day turnout. That's how much they vote early in Florida. So if these are your numbers on early voting, you're cooked. Moreover, as I'm recording here on Friday, many states, you still have today, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. Some states cut it off, but some states have, you know, you can have another four days. And the more early voting is going on, the worse it gets for Democrats. Why? Because there's three things. There's the in-person, there's the mail-in ballots, there's the in-person early voting, and then there's the election day voting. The first things that get tabulated are the mail-in ballots, okay? The mail-in ballots are, you know, now they do come in. They trickle in the whole time. They come in late, but the bulk of them have been mailed out ages ago, and they're sent back. Some of them are stragglers, but the bulk are come back immediately. Those are overwhelmingly Democrat. We know that. Because that those are the Karens. Those are the people this year, they're cannibalizing their election day voting. If you think about it, the irony is the Democrats have the ultimate voter suppression. Because they're telling their voters, you're going to die if you go out, especially if you're a senior. So they're not going out. So if you fail to turn in and convert your voters on mail-ins, you're done. You can't scramble to convince them to come out election day. They're not going to come out. You see this very evident in, in Palm Beach. Palm Beach, they started out, they break it down between mail-in and, or, and, and in-person early voting. Mail-ins, Democrats crushed it, even more than they did last time. Now, you might say that's a bad sign, but no. We know it's not just, oh, a bunch of Democrats have new votes that just mailed in. These are their election day voters. Palm Beach is a very senior county. You have seniors who are Republicans, you have seniors who are Democrats. Seniors who are Democrats likely never leave their home. Because, heck, there's a lot of younger Democrats that don't want to leave their home. They work for government. They have their government job. They could work from home. They don't leave. You ain't convincing an 80-year-old Democrat voter in Palm Beach County to vote on Election Day. So those are your mail-ins. But then, Republicans are crushing it in in in-person early voting in Palm Beach County. This is the Democrat's stronghold. So overall, they're roughly even. If you look at the count pre-election day between the mail-in and in-person early voting, they're about the benchmark they were. And remember, Trump won in 2016. But we have to believe that come election day, even if you believe there's a little bit more Republican cannibalization and turning out early, certainly there's much more Democrat cannibalization and they're going to do worse. And that's why people predict you know, by the time you hear this show, by the time you reach Tuesday morning, the margins of early voting will be even worse because Republicans are doing well in the early voting. It's the mail-ins that they that the Democrats are running up the margins in, but that's not because they're getting new voters. They're cannibalizing their existing voters. Miami-Dade is obviously just, you know, 
it, it's unbelievable what's going on. Republicans are winning, winning Miami-Dade. And, and again, like I would say there's something I'm missing. You can't read into early voting too much. Maybe independents are swinging for Democrats. But it jives with even what the mainstream polls are saying, that Trump is downright winning the Cuban vote. So think about this. Trump underperformed with Cubans in 2016, meaning he did worse than McCain and Romney and Bush, and he still won the state. Now, if he's doing downright historically better, Florida is is baked. So that's the big prize there. And we're seeing this over and over again, where Republicans are meeting or exceeding expectations. They're a little bit better in North Carolina than they were last time. Remember, Trump won North Carolina by three points. He only needs to win by a little bit. He won by three points. And they're downright doing better with early voting. Maricopa County Republicans are downright ahead in Maricopa County, Arizona. You would have to say some sort of thing, some sort of reason why Republicans are cannibalizing and and voting early more than before. But it makes no sense because if you want to tell me Republican seniors are scared to vote just like Democrat seniors are, then that's going to be reflected in the mail-ins. There's no reason you would early vote in person if you're scared of COVID more than... um, you know, election day, if anything, you're hearing all these stories of, you know, endless lines snaking around the building. So it's certainly not, you know, you're not having shorter lines and more social distancing with early voting. So part of the problem that I'm seeing with these polls that are showing, you know, certainly the national ones that show Biden up 10, 12 points. And then, you know, a lot of these state polls that have, um, you know, maybe even in Florida, um, uh, Trump, uh, Biden up in Arizona, Biden up in North Carolina, and certainly Biden up in Michigan and Wisconsin, and even Ohio, a lot of of the polls, most of the polls have Biden up. It's not reflected in early voting. And also, here's one thing we do know about polls. We don't know what's going to happen, but we know what has already happened, Okay. We know the margin in many states of how many registered Republicans versus Democrats turned out to vote. Now, we don't know who they voted for. We don't know that. It could be there's a bunch of Republicans voting for Biden. Let's just say. We don't know that. But what we do know is the spread of how many Republicans and Democrats turned out. You look at so many of these polls. Let's say the poll has, in a given state, It has Biden up five, okay? And now typically, historically, what that meant is it's a futuristic thing. Who are you going to vote for on election day? That's when we actually had a sane country and we had one election day. Now we have tons of election days. So a lot of them, the polls had to adjust in recent years. Pollsters have to ask, who have you voted for already? They have to reflect the percentage of people of early voting. A lot of these states literally have Democrats, these polls have Democrats up 15, 20, sometimes 30 points with early voting. And and traditionally, they've, they've often really crushed it in early voting a lot of these states. That is already not true. So they're saying a poll predicated on a D plus 20 early vote 
when it's D plus three, some states, they're downright winning. Then you look at Michigan. You look at Michigan, where Republicans are beating the benchmarks. They're almost they're only, only a few points below Democrats in early voting. And that includes tallying mail-ins where you know Democrats are scared to turn out, they're seniors especially, they're cannibalizing their vote. And everyone has, you know, Trump's down eight, 10 points in, in Michigan. But the problem is, Trump, the Republican turnout is winning, is downright up, not like overperforming, but downright ahead of Democrats in the all-important Detroit suburb of Oakland County. Now, I got news for you. Trump wound up winning Michigan. Winning Michigan by a hair, I mean the slimmest of margins. And he lost Oakland County by, I think, eight points. And you're telling me more Republicans have voted in early voting? Forget about election day in Oakland County? Now, again, there are a lot of Rockefeller registered Republicans Michigan's one of those states where a lot of union Democrats are flipping to Republican, the Trump coalition, and you do have some of these Republicans that have soured and, and have basically become Democrats. So, you know, you don't know, but still, you look at the benchmarks as compared to 2016, and I'm not understanding how you could say he's down 8, 10 points. Wisconsin's a similar story. Now, Pennsylvania is the only state that we don't have a read on where Democrats are like crushing it in early voting. But you're not going to tell me Democrats are going to win by 25 points in Pennsylvania. So there's something funny about that. Um, and, you know, it, there's been a longstanding view by both Republican and Democrat pollsters that out of the three big three Rust Belt states, Pennsylvania was always the most achievable relative to Wisconsin and Michigan. And then the states that published demographic breakdowns of early voting, meaning not just the party registration, are phenomenal. I mean, it's it's showing that there is no surge of young voters, that young voters aren't turning out, that the electorate is whiter, more non-college educated, and older. Where, where, where that is very evident is in Arizona and North Carolina. North Carolina, we're seeing a drop in black turnout, at least in early voting. So there's a, there's a lot of talk about Trump picking up more black support. But remember, an even bigger factor is less black turnout. Because, you know, still at the end of the day, it's whether Democrats are going to win the black vote, you know, 90-10 or 85-5, uh, 85-15. So it's still, you know, the, the the best thing is for lower turnout if you're if you're you know a Republican. And now the two factors are obviously mixed because the lower the turnout, the you know, the more you the Republican turnout of black vote, you know, will compose of the pie and it, the two kind of merge. But anyway, you know, more and more I'm seeing that it really is a repeat of last time. Albeit Trump is likely going to do even worse in some of these suburbs and Texas, Arizona, Georgia might be even closer. I mean, Arizona was not much margin. It was only three and a half points. 
But Georgia, instead of five, could be three. Texas, instead of nine, it could be a win it by six. And absolutely, there is a long-term problem with that. But, you know, in terms of Tuesday, he's only got to win win by by one vote in those states. Now, obviously, you want it more because, they'll you know, you have the whole litigation. But, you know, you're going to have that. But at the same time, you look at a state like Minnesota. I mean, even the mainstream polls have him. They actually have him doing better there than they have him doing in Michigan. You have the Senate race, which is which is close. You have the rioting there. That was the epicenter. You have severe lockdowns. And, and, and that's another thing, another point I wanted to share with you before we move on to the Boston Tea Party, which is that to me, the Republican, this whole dichotomy of Trump on the one hand kind of overperforming some places even more than last time, but underperforming states that Republicans have long held and suburbs that Republicans have long held, counties and districts. Some of that enigma is very interesting. It's solved by who is the governor. Part of why I think Trump is is on the cusp of, of possibly a big victory is because of the Democrat governors. Look at what you have. Look at Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. They all have two things in common. They have, number one, Democrat governors that have imposed draconian lockdowns that are on par with New York and California, albeit the demographic is not like New York and California. And it's much more in play. And Trump downright won. I mean, he didn't win in Minnesota. He came close. But he won the other three. The people are ticked. Part of what I told you months ago is like, I said, look, you know, if Trump doesn't turn this around, I don't see how he wins because unlike last time when he was the insurgent, he's the incumbent and you own the lockdowns. You own it. It's on your watch. But... If you're a voter in Michigan, you're not blaming Trump. Everyone knows from Whitmer. Everyone knows from her. They had a high-profile court battles, ballot initiatives, petitions, protests. Those are states they really worked very hard. Michigan is probably our best grassroots state in terms of fighting COVID communism. Then you have, at least in three of the four states, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, some of the worst and most recent rioting that plays against them. So last time, Republicans controlled the governorships in all those states. Now Democrats do. Traditionally, Republican presidents and vice versa always like to have someone from your party in charge of that state to run the get out the vote apparatus. If you ever have, you know, ballot problems and the legal problems and that and obviously that does swing against us in, in these states but in terms of the dynamic for the voters it hurts the democrats if you flip the other side of the coin i think you can now understand georgia texas and arizona cuz they have a bunch of schmucky rhino republicans Doug Duncy and Greg Abbott where they basically have lockdown policies but it's Republican. So, dude, I'm a, you have a, a Republican president, a Republican governor. They don't have a narrative there. So I think that's weighing them down. It's paradoxical, but I actually think that is how you have a scenario where Trump could barely hold some of these Republican states, but surprise everyone and sweep the Rust Belt and even, and even Minnesota. And by the way, the same thing goes for Nevada. 
Nevada also, uh, Democrats are underperforming their numbers. Now, I don't know if it's by enough that they could lose it, but Trump only lost it by, let's say, two and a half, three last time. So Nevada, Nevada I think, is going to be very, very close, very close. Trump's doing better with the Hispanic voters. Nevada, unlike some of the Arizona suburbs and certainly Colorado, is more non-college educated whites, plus the better Hispanic uh, spread that he, than he's had. Nevada's in play, but also Nevada has a very draconian lockdown promulgated by a Democrat governor last time you had a Republican governor there. So you see what I'm saying? Ironically, you can't look at the incumbency effect like, hey, you you own it in terms of the president. you got to look at the governors. And more than ever, governors have mattered, for better or for worse, and usually for the worse. So typically, it's like, well, who's president? Well, I blame you. But the coronavirus thing, the Democrats think that's their best issue, but it's actually hurting them in, in, in more states. Now, what's interesting is Ohio. And I, I, have, a, I have a friend of mine. I asked him, he's, he's from Ohio, and I said, why is it that nobody seems to think Trump's going to do better in Ohio and that he's going to do worse? All the polls have him downright losing it. None of us buy it. He's going to win it. But most of our guys feel he's going to win Ohio by five. Now, Ohio... Trump won last time by eight. Now, what's the pattern we're saying? That in the areas where Trump underperformed Romney and the historical Republican you know, outcomes, he's going to do even worse, but hopefully still hold on. But he's going to do better in other places. They seem to be turning out newer voters, do better with black voters, do better with Hispanic voters and somehow turn out even more non-college-educated whites that never voted. So Ohio should be a prime example of that, with along with the other Rust Belt states, that if you want it by eight, if we are right in this sort of electorate that we're seeing, he should win it by ten. But the thought is he'll only win it by five. Boom, you got your answer. Guess who's governor there? DeWino. Derino. He's a Republican. Lockdown. So that's that's harming them a little bit. Now, I think the good news is he's such a rhino that most people don't even associate him as much of a Republican. So that works against you. So that's kind of where I see the race right now. I see it that is it's very close. In other words, It's not that there's no truth to the polls. Texas is going to not be good for Republicans. But not being good doesn't mean you lose it. You only win it by a few points, which is terrible long term. But a win's a win. And Georgia, they're not going to win it by that much. But a win's a win. Arizona is absolutely in play. People forget. Trump only won it by three and a half last time, so it's already somewhat in play. They're not wrong, but I think he is ahead. If you look at the early voting and you look at the trends, you look at everything else they're talking about. But again, you know, it's within the margin of error. If you wake up and Trump loses, I wouldn't be shocked. 
But that's very different than the narrative the media is putting out. We're likely he's a little bit ahead, maybe ahead by two points. And then you look at all those other states that he won in the Rust Belt, and they're very much in play, plus that second district in Maine, Minnesota, and Nevada. Well, the second district in Maine he won last time. That's very blue collar, and he won it by 10 points. So I just, demographically, I don't see how he would lose that. Um, And Minnesota very much speaks to the strengths. Nevada, too. Those are states he didn't win but came close. Now, the state he came the closest to winning but didn't win was New Hampshire. From what I'm hearing, that's not so much in play, and that makes sense. New Hampshire is much more white-collar, um, college-educated than the 2nd District of Maine. So, you know, again, that's kind of what I'm hearing. But, you know, all of these states are very close. So you could easily have a map where Trump, he's got North Carolina, Arizona, Florida's in the bag. He's got all the states he went. He just needs to pick off one one of the three or even one of the four if you include Minnesota in the Rust Belt slash Midwest. But again, all of that is very tenuous. So, you know, it's very fluid. So as you can tell, I'm just as excited as everyone else. I would love for Trump to pull a stunner and crush them. I would love it. I want it. I want it badly. And I, w- I would be so euph- euphoric like everyone else. I'm no different. But folks, then what are we going to do? Where is our Boston Tea Party moment? And that's what we need. Here's the problem we face. Here's the problem we face. You see, the tyranny of the British and King George wasn't that bad, which is why there were vigorous fights with the Tories, the Loyalists. They were like, hey, Sam Adams, hey, Patrick Henry, hey, John Adams, John Hancock, why are you picking a fight? This is what they said at that first Continental Congress in September, October 1774. Why are you picking a fight? The taxes are low. It's a couple of smugglers who want to, you know, John Hancock, you know, made millions of dollars off of smuggling. The, the, the control King George played in their lives, the role he played in their lives, was much less than anything we have even before Corona fascism, much less today. They were a free people, basically, with a couple of wrinkles. The Quartering Act, obviously, the British troops. I mean, you look today. A Maryland man was arrested for not wearing a mask while voting when the courts are now saying that the state voting is such a fundamental right that the state has to take positive action to to make it accommodating for someone to vote. And then to downright say you have to put a negative thing on you. You're not allowed to vote unless you cover your face. You're arrested. This occurred in Harford County, Maryland. That's a Republican county with what was supposed to be a 287G sheriff. I have uh, some emails into friends. I'm in Baltimore County. 
uh, one county to the west. And I asked, like, what, what's up with the guy? I thought he was good. How do you have a Republican sheriff arresting a guy like that? Again, we have this under Republican counties. We have worse tyranny than anything King George did. That's not going to change on its own with an election victory. But anyway, that was the point that you see the big debate between the Patriots and the Loyalists. But ultimately, the Patriots had an amazing argument. Ultimately, they were right. And we see it today. John Adams, one of his most famous letters and, and sayings, statements, in late 1774, when you know, during the time they were debating the Continental Congress, when it was kind of transitioning from the protest period to the violence period, you know, ahead of um, uh, Lexington and Concord and some of the you know skirmishes that seemed to lead up to that, and the you know violent clashes between the tax collectors and the British soldiers. Daniel Leonard who was um, a friend of Adams and was originally on board with the Stamp Act Congress and fighting this stuff, he was like, look, I'm all for fighting the policies, but, but don't do something this drastic of trying to rebel against the British. And he basically said to him something to the effect that they had letters back and forth, all for three pence, three pence attacks, like... For peanuts. That's what you're you're risking your lives for. And he made the following point, John Adams. And mind you, by the way, John Adams was very measured. He was less wild-eyed than his cousin Sam, and he very much opposed violence. And that's why he downright defended the British troops as a lawyer. He defended them in court at the Boston Massacre, and he was like, look, I mean, these guys started up with the troops. It was self-defense. I support the revolution. I support what we're doing, but you can't just in cold blood start up with someone and not give him the right to self-defense. We're an American revolution. This is what distinguishes us from the French Revolution. I mean, he didn't say that. The French Revolution was, was later, but that was his point. But nonetheless, he was an ardent supporter of what Sam Adams was fundamentally doing because of this. This is what he said in his letter. Nip the shoots of arbitrary power in the bud is the only maxim, the only maxim which can preserve the liberties of any people. When the people give way, their deceivers, betrayers, and destroyers press upon them so fast that there is no resisting afterwards. Think about that. Think about the frog in the boiling water. The nature of the encroachment upon the American Constitution is such as to grow every day more and more encroaching. Like a cancer, it eats faster and faster every hour. The revenue creates pensioners, and the pensioners urge for more revenue. The people grow less steady, spirited, and virtuous. The seekers more numerous and more corrupt. And every day increases the circles of their dependence and expectance until virtue, integrity, public spirit, simplicity, and frugality become the objects of ridicule and scorn, and vanity, luxury, foppery, selfishness, meanness, and downright venality swallow up the whole society. I mean, for, what was amazing about the founders is their, their ability to see around the curve. 
they didn't dispute the fact that what the British were doing wasn't that bad. And if they would kind of give in a little bit, the parliament would have temporarily, and they actually throughout the Stamp Act and Sugar Act and then Townshend Acts, they, they gave in. They're like, they protested, they, they repealed a lot of it. But they saw where they were headed with it. And there were two points that Adams were, was making in this letter. Number one is, yeah, you're right. The 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 acts of of usurp the usurpations are tolerable. They are still currently tolerable. But as Jefferson and Adams certainly helped draft that, ultimately wrote in the Declaration of Independence, is that when you suffer while it's still tolerable. Then you reach a point where you can no longer rebel. You're right, you could tolerate it because you're still free. If you wait till you're no longer free, well, you're no longer free and you can't rebel. And that's why the Boston Tea Party was so important. It was viewed by so many at the time as overkill. And the Patriots almost had an agenda to make it worse and elicit the reaction of the coercive acts. They wanted it. Because they wanted people to fight, and it worked. Because they, they did some things like with the Quartering Act and some other things that affected all the states, the Quebec Act, banning them from settling west of um, the, the Appalachian Mountains and, and giving almost giving the French the uh, more, more, more rights there, the French that were defeated in the French and Indian War. So anyway, they, they, they elicited a reaction that would have affected people because they hated, I hate, like this is the point. Oh, it doesn't bother me. I could work from home. I could do this. The divide and conquer. I would rather people feel the pain. And that's what they wanted. They, the surgery had to be done while you could still do it. That's one thing. The other point, which is closely connected, it's part of why you can't do a rebellion when the tyranny is too much is not just because physically you're going to lose, they'll, they'll mow you down, but also spiritually, economically, and practically, the dependency. Tyranny is, it, they, they didn't believe they'd have a tyranny like a Middle Age era tyranny. It was post-enlightenment. Even in England itself, it was enlightened. They had common law, you had parliament. It's not, it, it wasn't divine rule of kings. It was somewhat like what we call today venture socialism rather than full socialism. All the people benefit from it. Look at all the dependency now. Look at how true that is. People benefit from the regulations, from the taxation, from the market distortions. And then there's Patrick Henry, made the argument the same way. A couple months later, March 23rd, 1775, when really it looked like it was an inflection point leading up to Lexington and Concord, the Second Continental Congress. He said to the Virginia legislators, they met in a church, and he was convincing them to join the, the Second Continental Congress and vote to vote for independence. And he got up and he said the following. Mr. President, 
It is natural to man to indulge the illusions of hope. We are apt to shut our eyes against a painful truth and listen to the song of that siren till she transforms us into beasts. Is this the part of wise men engaged in a great and arduous struggle for liberty? Are we disposed to be the number of those who, having eyes, see not, and having ears, hear not, the things which so nearly concern their temporal salvation? For my part, whatever anguish of my spirit it may cost, I am willing to know the whole truth, to know the worst, and to provide for it. And he talked about learning from past experience. Judging by the past, I wish to know what there has been in the conduct of the British ministry for the last 10 years to justify those hopes with which gentlemen have been pleased to solace themselves and the house. He's speaking to the loyalists. Is it that insidious smile with which our petition has been lately received? Trust it not, sir. It will prove a snare to your feet. Suffer not yourselves to be betrayed with a kiss. Ask yourselves how this gracious reception of our petition comports with those warlike uh, preparations which cover our wa- our waters and darken our land. Our, our fleets and armies necessary to a work of love and reconciliation? Have we shown ourselves so unwilling to be reconciled that force must be called in to win back our love? Let us not deceive ourselves, sir. These are the implements of war and subjugation, the last arguments to which kings resort. I ask, gentlemen, sir, what means this martial array if its purpose be not to force us to submission? I'm just going to skip a little bit here for time constraints. That he, he was saying that you can't look at where things are now. You have to look at where they're headed. You have to look why, what are they going to do with this power? How long are you going to hold off? There is no longer any room for hope. If we wish to be free, if we mean to preserve, inviolate those inestimable privileges for which we have been so long contending, if we mean not basely to abandon the noble struggle in which we have been so long engaged, and which we have pledged ourselves never to abandon until the glorious object of our contest shall be obtained, we must fight. They tell us, sir, that we are weak, unable to cope with so formidable an adversary. But when shall we be stronger? Will it be next week or the next year? Again, this is a very profound thought. It echoes Adam's sentiments that it only gets worse and you have less ability to deal with it if you wait until the usurpations get stronger. Will it be when we are totally disarmed and when a British guard shall be stationed in every house? Shall we gather strength by irresolution and inaction? Shall we acquire the means of effectual resistance by lying supinely on our backs and hugging the delusive phantom phantom of hope until our enemies shall have bound us hand and foot? Sir, we are not weak if we make a proper use of those means with which the God of nature has placed in our power. The millions of people armed in the holy cause of liberty and in such a country as with which we possess are invincible by any force which our enemy can send against us. Besides, sir, we shall not fight our battles alone. There is a just God who presides over the destinies of nations and who will rise or raise up friends to fight our battles for us. And ultimately, it did happen with the French. The battle, sir, is not to the strong alone. 
It is to the vigilant, the active, the brave. Besides, sir, we have no election. He talks about elections. And then, of course, he ends off with the famous ending. It is in vain, sir, to extenuate the matter. Gentlemen may cry, peace, peace, but there is no peace. The war is actually begun. The next gale that sweeps from the north will bring to our ears the clash of resounding arms. Our brethren are already in the field. He's speaking of the Bostonians. Why stand we here idle? What is it that gentlemen wish? What would they have? Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know not what course others may take. But as for me, give me liberty or give me death. Folks, those words ring true today more than ever before, more than they did at the time. We have long passed that moment where, you know, usurpations are tolerable. When are we going to rebel? Folks, we have in red counties and red states with a Republican president the worst tyranny ever. As we head into this election, as we come out of the election, we must remember this will not change. We have opportunities, but we have to fight them if Trump wins. And in some ways, we have less of a kick in the pants. See, part of the problem we have nowadays is that the enemy is too... (sighs) See, it's almost like we're repeating what history, but we have a bigger challenge than they had is because then the enemy was very tangible and it was one person, King George, basically. The problem now is it's a political class. It's a cultural elite, and they control the politicians. It's most Republicans and every Democrat. It's governors, it's county officials. It's deep state executive branches, the courts. It's Hollywood, it's the media. It's the business elites. It's the social media censors. It's everyone. It's big science, big technology. It's everyone. It's very subtle. That's the problem. So it's almost like you don't even know what and who to rebel against and how to rebel. How do you have your Tea Party moment? And this is our challenge. But as Patrick Henry said, it's not that hard. It really isn't. If everyone would get together and say, we're just not doing this. They had, leading up from the Stamp Act until the Continental Congress... It was a miracle. How do you get 12 disparate states together? Georgia didn't join till later. You know, how how do you get them together? They didn't know each other. They didn't like each other to agree on everything. But it started with the committees of correspondence that Sam Adams set up for the 10 preceding years. I really think we need to do this. You know, I don't mean to get funky with you, but I've been calling on this for several years. A meeting of the minds. Have delegates. It's not so much state anymore, but that wouldn't hurt to have it. Kind of what Mark Meckler and the um, Convention of the States folks did in Williamsburg. They had a mock convention of the states. And we should do that. Get together and have a Continental Congress meeting of minds and committees of correspondence. There's no reason. I mean, they were able to do this without technology. And form those groups. Decentralized at local levels. 
to communicate what we're doing, but fight back at a local level. It's going to have to be done no matter who wins. And what I fear is if Biden wins, we'll have more of an impetus to do it. Make no mistake about it. We need to be doing this no matter what. Nothing will put a smile on my face than Trump crushing these bastards. But just know, those of you who have listened to this show from the beginning and certainly the last four years, you know that Trump could be used as a cudgel for us, which is good, or he could be used as a crutch. I'd rather he be used as a cudgel. It's, it's a false dichotomy. Is Trump good or bad? It's, it's what you want to make of him. He has a lot of potential. He generally wants to do what we want to do, and even the issues where he's kind of bad on, if we get in his face, he'll be better on them. But if you use him as a crutch, oh, we're taken care of. Well, <laughs> watch not only the other Republicans continue to screw us, but even this White House, Jared Ivanka, Brooke Rollins, and all these people take a second-term stunning victory and pass the Second Step Act. An amnesty. Watch that happen. Don't think that can't happen. This is what we need. We need to get vigilant. Take the energy and excitement and focus that you have from the election, and no matter what, take it past election day and ratchet up the intensity. Because, folks, if you follow in the footsteps of the founders to at least have a political revolution, that is much more impactful than your vote. It really is. And I'm not saying voting is not important. But that's the point. So I wanted to share that with you. I'm somewhat optimistic. I still think it's very close in terms of the outcome. I'm excited if Trump wins. But just remember the pitfalls and don't repeat the mistakes of last time. And don't think we're going to win on its own. Don't think the ball is going to get in the end zone on its own just because you recovered possession. You could do nothing. You could get sacked. You could fumble. You could toss an interception. We got to make the right plays. We got to get together. We got to recognize that we need a revolution and voting Republican (laughs) is not that revolution. Even if you think it's necessary of the lesser of two evils for Tuesday, that is not the revolution. The revolution is going to start with the Corona fascism We need a Tea Party moment. We need, if Trump does win, we need to say, we are done, you lost. Drop the mask, have mask mask burning. You know what would be great? Because the left is going to riot and Trump needs to put those riots down. But while they're doing that, we should have our own demonstrations. Not violent, but mask burning. In the, again, in the model of the Tea Party. In the model of an American revolution. Folks, give me liberty or give me death is a profound statement. Let's not be happy with, oh, I have a Republican elected, so I'm okay if we have worse debt, worse health care, worse tyranny, worse anarchy, worse jailbreak, 
worst illegal immigration. I didn't even get to this story I have on immigration. I have an article up today about an asylum seeker who was granted asylum that killed three people in a drunk driving incident 10 minutes after he was filmed. He filmed himself bragging about driving drunk. This guy was granted asylum. Three Americans dead as a result of that. There's a lot of work we have to do. And that's just going to begin Wednesday morning. Well, look, we had a terrific week. We had a lot of great guests this week, great insights. I can only do it with your support and your support of our sponsors of this week, bullandbranch.com. Um, promo code Daniel there if you want. Uh, uh, um, obviously, our special promo for betting and, and pillows we the people holsters we had as well to get your holster. Sign up for your $30 off Blaze TV subscription at Blaze TV forward slash CR promo code Daniel. That's the thing. We got to stay focused. I'm, I'm telling you, we're going to need this movement no matter who wins. They're going to take a different shape. They're going to be different focus, different opportunities, different pitfalls. But we do not have the ball in the end zone. We have a very good chance of, of winning an onside kick and winning reclaiming possession of the ball again. But the work begins after that. So have a terrific weekend. God bless you all. And see you again in an exciting week next week.